0: Increasingly, it seems that when it comes to education, it may not always be a case of what one knows, but rather who one knows, or worse still, who one pays for their admittance to the finest of universities. Americans are by nature egalitarian, but the pursuit of the Ivy League and other prestigious schools can sometimes undermine this core value. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell and this is Watching America.
1: my life. Watching America.
0: my life. Panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America.
1: Hail
0: They need a lot of rest. They gotta make good for dad. They gotta make good so bad. They'll even pay someone to take that test. Poison, I believe. Poison, bad, I believe. How can they flunk? They're so full of funk. Poison, I believe. They give me a rack. That I believe. There was an investigation by the federal government. It was entitled Operation Varsity Blues. You see, federal prosecutors were challenged over the notion that there were more than 50 people involved with the college admission scandal. Now, These persons involved included coaches, examination administrators, and nearly three dozen parents. Amongst the parents involved were two actresses, Felicity Huffman and Laurie Loughlin. Laurie Loughlin is married to Mossimo Giannoli, the fashion designer. They have two daughters, Isabella Rose and Olivia Jade both of whom aspired to go to USC and indeed wanted to be accepted, although under the circumstances it became evident that the acceptance was, well, fraudulent. For instance, it was alleged that they were on crew teams, which was not the truth. On March 12, 2019, the parents were arrested for alleged involvement of the college entrance scandal, and on May 22nd, 2020, Lachling pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud. Giannulli pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire mail fraud and one count to honest services wire mail fraud. The distinguishing factor there, I'm not quite sure. But this we do know. Some sum in the form of $500,000 was issued in various bribes, including the issue of the erroneous and fake crew team. Felicity Huffman was also arrested on March 12, 2019, and then sentenced that year, the 13th of September, to 14 days in prison for having paid a proctor of the SAT examination $15,000 to change her daughter's incorrect answers. The former Desperate Housewife star was supported by her husband, William H. Macy, throughout the entire ordeal. Now the central name associated with this corruption is one William Rick Singer, a rather glib, braggart, with a, well, ironically, winsome personality, capable of making the unacceptable at least seem acceptable. Now is the time to cue my guests. Melissa Korn is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Her beat, to use an old expression, is higher education, considering the good, the bad, and the ugly therein. She is now joined by her colleague, Jennifer Levitz, who also writes for The Wall Street Journal, and these ladies have co-authored the exposé, unacceptable privilege deceit and the making of the college admissions scandal it is my great pleasure to interview and to welcome to watching america both melissa corn and jennifer levitz welcome ladies thanks so much Thank for having you us. i want to begin by asking you Ms. corn if i may what actually brought you to covering education uh, was it just uh, an available assignment and beat as i said before presented to you or did you have an avid passion for the topic
2: I've always been really interested in education. So before taking on this coverage area, which I've been doing for the last uh, about six years at the Journal, I covered business schools. I've covered for-profit colleges and student lenders. So I've always had some element of education in my coverage. It's relatable. People uh, went to college. Their children went to college. Their children, They're aspiring for their children to go to college. They love to hate Harvard. There's always some connection that somebody has to higher education.
0: Sounds like a T-shirt to me, love to hate Harvard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it might be.
0: Yeah, and I must expand the same question, if I may, to to J- Jennifer. What attracted you to working on this particular project uh, with Melissa Korn?
1: I am a U.S. news reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and I work in the Boston Bureau. So as part of that, I cover... Um, everything that happens in New England. And so on that particular day, this was uh, not only the biggest story in New England, but in the country and made headlines around the world. So I got up and ran down to the courthouse and that was about the next thing I knew, that was the rest of my
0: year. <laughs> yeah, because essentially it was it was Massachusetts and, uh, and, and Beverly Hills. It seemed to be at least, uh, and I may be mistaken and uh, uh, you know, erroneously declaring something, but it did seem to be an East Coast, West Coast uh, thing. Let me ask you a question. How did we get to the point in the United States of America that many parents seem to think that their child's near entire worth is dependent on the school that they get into?
2: There were so many factors at play here, um, and I think it really is just a skewed worldview, a bit of insularity, this idea that everyone else is so focused on this, I should be too. Uh, We trace a lot of it back to the rise of college rankings, so dating back to the 1980s when U.S. News & World Report started issuing regular rankings of the best colleges. And it very quickly became not just a measure of the school, but a measure of the families and the students attending the school. And it was no longer so much about fit or, you know, what's the best school for Little Johnny, but what's the best school that Little Johnny can get into? And it almost didn't matter what their academic interests were or what type of environment they might thrive in. It was, which is ranked better.
0: I am probably, you know, mistaken, uh, but I am reasonably uh, confident that it's somewhere in the region of 50 to 75% of all the top Fortune 500 companies, corporations, are actually run as CEOs by people who went to state colleges. So this this uh, disproportionate emphasis on the Ivy League uh, seems to, to abound without necessarily complete logical reason, am I mistaken in that?
2: People can go to any type of school and have a very successful life, a very successful career, but there is absolutely this focus, this laser focus on getting into the hardest possible school to get into. So you want to be able to boast that you got into a school that, or that your kid got into a school with an advent rate below 20%, below 15%, below 10, and even in some cases, 5%. That is a, a sign of success to have gotten into that school, whether or not it's really a better school than the one that admits a larger share of applicants.
0: Well, it's said that with some people, ambition knows no bounds. And that certainly Mm -hmm. would be the the case of uh, concentric circles around one particular character called Rick Singer. Tell us about him.
1: Rick Singer was uh, an extraordinarily competitive guy. um, Right from the get-go, he grew up... uh, uh, ferociously competitive, doing anything to win, um, coach little league or coach basketball teams had to win by, you know, 50 points, all that. Um, and he became a legitimate college counselor and he'd also been a sports coach and he was actually a very good college admissions consultant. Um, but he, you know, as a former sports coach, he knew the advantages that athletes have in getting into colleges. And he devised a plan to exploit that knowledge uh, to illegally help his big-money clients get their kids into elite schools. Um, so he was, he was somebody who was doing college counseling the right way, um, at least in the beginning, but he was extraordinarily competitive. And it seems that this scam really uh, accelerated when he started to get big clients who were just as competitive. As he was, and he took their getting their kids into school as a personal challenge. It was almost um, an ego boost. The former employee told us it would almost be like gambling and getting a jolt. So this guy who was just he was anything to win, sports, all his life, turn that on college counseling, and and then um, next thing you know, this is what we have.
0: Well, was he a, a approval-seeking kind of personality? I mean, you say that he he almost had a, a legitimate passion for seeing. T- that these people, these these offsprings of the of the, if, if you will, privileged wealthy, whatever terms you want to use, were able to get in. Did he did he like the fact that he was able to say, yeah, I pulled it off? Um, we do know he had a propensity to to make things up. I mean, he he said at one point. I believe that he had been with Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs had showed him a year before the iPhone came out, what the what the original prototype of the iPhone was going to look like. So he could elaborate and pontificate on on, on truths. Um, But was there some earnest part to his personality?
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. He um, he did seem to genuinely care about some of the kids. And he um, he did have uh, at. At some point, you know, he kind of had a heart for the underdog. When he'd been a coach at Sacramento State, he would go into um, you know, poor areas to recruit and kind of mentor kids. Um, he he did seem to, to want to see some of these kids do well, but um, I think you know he had this drive to to win in in business, and um, he just started to you know it was a challenge to him. I think he, a parent would have a child and while maybe their guidance counselor at school was telling them, no, he could tell them, yes, And then he could figure out a way. And it was like a puzzle for him. And, you know, he, we know that he made a lot of money, but he didn't seem to be, um, someone who was all about getting rich. He didn't go on vacations. He was a workaholic. Um, it was almost like the money was just a, a way to, to check off the scorecard.
0: Now, how did he get his first, if you will, candidates? Um, I know he obviously grew up Jewish and um, it's been alluded to that he would go to various Jewish community centers and what have you and, and make contacts. And um, very much like others, you know, word gets around and, and then people were attracted to him. But what was his first, if you will, breakthrough um, personality that he was able to propel into a fine university and then word got out that you got to call this guy? So
2: he was in uh, Sacramento for the early part of his career, really from the late 80s until uh, right around 2012. And he started working with kind of people who were big names there. He passed his name was passed around among high school parents. Um, So. You know, local business executives uh, would, would use him and get his name passed around. And even before he moved down to Orange County uh, in Newport Beach, California, he was already working with clients really around the country. He would boast of having a private plane uh, that uh, would, you know, somebody would send a private plane to get him to go do some counseling for a couple hours in Illinois. He would be in Southern California. He had clients really all over. Uh, from a pretty early point. So it wasn't necessarily one single client who kind of put him on the map, but this is very much a word-of-mouth business. So a couple of people refer him, and then he's in good with a particular community, and it goes from there.
0: Well, there are varying shades of grey, and how do you go from doing what is legitimate, coaching, helping people, advising people on how to get into a prominent university, versus crossing the line. Now, clearly, taking a Photoshop picture of somebody and inserting that on somebody being on a crew team uh, is, is undis- indisputably uh, over the line. But was it gradual or was it immediate with uh, with Rick Singer? It was, it
1: was gradual from what we can tell.
2: Right, he would kind of Sorry. push up against the boundaries uh, really from a pretty early point. Uh, Jennifer, you have that example of, um, you know, when he sold one of his early businesses and uh, the the person who bought it kind of learned some interesting things about how he had operated quite early on. Um, And those were things, themes that he kind of continued throughout and then pushed a little further and pushed a little further and a little further.
0: Well, what were the early stages, with some degree of specificity, Jennifer, that that you were aware of in the selling of the business, which were, if you will, a telltale sign of this man might not be on the up and up?
1: Sure. Okay. So, um, so he's it's in the 90s, and he's all over um, in Sacramento, getting a lot of clients, and he decides to sell his business around 1998. Um, he takes a brief detour into the call center industry, uh, and a uh, man who bought the business. Um, took over his counseling, all his files and everything. And he started to get together with some parents who had second kids who'd used Rick Singer for the first kid. And he had a couple families tell him some very strange things. One family said, um, well, you know, um, uh, Rick Singer wrote, you know, Billy's essay, um, sort of almost asking, you know, is that the kind of thing you do? And he said, uh, no, I, I don't do that, you know, and, um, and, but the second one was, it was a little, a little more off color, which was um, the family said that Rick had suggested that their child, who is white, mark himself down as Latino to get him, to get a better shot at admissions. And he had in fact done that, He'd gone ahead and done it. And the college had caught on somehow because he'd marked himself differently with his SAT. Um, but again, so this gentleman who bought the business realized right then, like something is, is strange. That was just two people um, So we know that that kind of thing was, was going on, you know, as early as 1998.
0: And despite this incongruent um, series of, of questionable data and facts um, besides you know the the infamous photoshopping that occurred later what other things would he do to uh, be an advocate for for potential students trying to get into the best schools
1: there was another example um, Melissa why don't you talk about the what how he would he would tell kids when they went to school to visit
2: oh um, yeah, um, he really understood admissions uh quite well. And he understood that schools were looking for certain types of students and there's geographic diversity, there's ethnic and racial and socioeconomic diversity. And then he would explain to students, you know, when you're going on your campus visit, whether or not this is your first choice school, pretend like it is, say like it is, because the school is going to get really excited if they think an applicant really wants to come there. So if a student says, this is absolutely my first choice, if I got in here, I would come that might bump them up a little bit in uh, when it comes time for those admissions decisions. Versus if they're like, you know, I'm really debating with, among two or three other schools still. Uh, but yeah, this is on my list.
1: There was one other example where
2: he uh, he was
1: he would work out at the gym and he talked to people and he was just a fanatic, uh, fanatical workout you know guy. And one day, somebody next to him just said. You know, I, I don't know how you, you can do this. He was talking about this kind of thing. I don't know how you can do this at the UC system, University of California, because that's a formula. And, and he said, you know, well, no, I could say that somebody was the first in their family to go to college. And this person said, well, what if they got caught? And Rick said they don't.
0: Uh-huh. Well, I was thinking even about the Hispanic reference before that uh, he had advocated somebody claimed to be Hispanic. And, you know, if one really thinks about it logically, and certainly no one here is recommending this, um, there is no way of assuring uh, another that somebody is Hispanic. For instance, you can have a non-Hispanic last name, presumably that of, of the male father. Uh, and you could claim that their mother was Hispanic and have just as much claimed supposedly to the legitimacy of being Hispanic than anyone else. I mean, how do you check these things out? Bottom line, you can't. Um, I do know of years ago a hearing of a man from South Africa who just put down that he was African, and the people at the university in California, which shall remain nameless, assumed that he was of dark skin, which he wasn't. And so he would play that to his advantage um, in, in various capacities. Uh, some special factors in getting into college, uh, which you've acknowledged elsewhere, uh, having an SAT tutor, perfectly legitimate. Um, there are universities and, and colleges that seem to pay, and forgive me, this is just my personal opinion, but an inordinate amount of attention to clubs, uh, you know, soccer clubs, uh, athletic clubs, and, and what have you. And as a person from originally across the water, who's happily an American citizen, I might add, it's always been a bit of an enigma to me. I don't understand the emphasis of evaluating a scholar, potential scholar, based on whatever club they've been in or what what they do with a ball or a bat. Can you help me to understand this?
2: <laughs> yeah. So I think it, it is baffling even to people who grew up here and go through the system. So I think schools say a lot of colleges and universities say that they are trying to admit a class with diverse interests and diverse skill sets. And looking at what somebody does outside the classroom is an important way of helping to to, uh, allow for that. So you've got students who are maybe a little bit more type A, students who are a little bit more laid back. You've got students who are particularly into math and science, ones who like literature, Ones who are kind of going to join a big group and get engaged on campus, and ones who maybe a little bit more loners. And you want students who have shown particular skills over their high school careers that would then translate into college. So leadership, uh, dedication, um, things like that, uh, show on the field or on the court. So schools talk about these athletes as if they're kind of superhuman. They they you know, they do it all. They have great time management skills because they've been training so hard while also getting good grades. and they're natural leaders and they can handle defeat and they bounce back. and all of those attributes are really appealing to university admissions officers and to you know faculty and others at the schools. So athletics is one way to show that in your in your application if you are, in fact, a gifted athlete. Now, being a gifted athlete and completely unqualified academically uh, is a little tougher. But if you're kind of a bubble candidate or on the on the edge of being admissible academically, and then you have uh, the athletic prowess, uh, that that can really give you quite a boost.
0: But there's interesting studies, I'm sure you're aware of this, that uh, would refute this uh, assumption, may I call it, because, for instance, you have introverted personalities that time and time and time again have been proven actually to be very often more thorough and more thoughtful in their endeavors and have some of the best suggestions in the corporate room or elsewhere, in engineering and what have you, simply because they do have a, um, a personality which is a bit more reserved and it works to their benefit. So in that kind of scale, um, it's going to be uh, a definite disadvantage. I, I will uh, allude to a study that uh, you were involved with, and, or an issue you were involved with, um, Melissa Kern, uh, with a colleague Nicole Hong, which was looking at Harvard, Harvard administration um, admission policies. And very often, most um, American Asians uh, who applied had the highest academic. Ratings, But when interviewed or evaluated by um, persons who would make the selection of who actually got to go to Harvard, they would score rather low uh, with the lowest personal ratings. How did that resolve itself? And is that not in of itself an indication of what I'm talking about, where sometimes you may not have people who are externally motivated? They may be um, uh, very comfortable in the ivory tower uh, of a sort. And yet they don't get the merit or the potential recognized in them that the athlete does.
2: So, yeah, absolutely. And and I can't say there can be introverted athletes, but uh, I do get your point. So what you're talking about with Harvard uh, stems from uh, discovery in a civil lawsuit uh, from 2014. And the trial was in late 2018 up in Boston as well in the same courthouse that the Varsity Blues case originated And in that, in the Harvard case, uh, a group was alleging that Harvard discriminated against Asian American applicants by holding them to a higher academic standard and not giving them such great scores on some of the kind of less quantifiable measures that the school used in its admissions. So they said, you know, oh, these students, they tend to be quieter, they tend to, Uh, always want to go into the same types of fields. And they really kind of, in some cases, played up stereotypes in their notes on the candidates. Um, A judge, a federal judge found that Harvard did not discriminate. The case has been appealed. But, you know, I think it helped remind everybody that this is not a perfect science, uh, the admissions process, especially when a school is not just using test scores. And increasingly, schools are not using test scores at all. Uh, so they've got to figure out what it is they want to measure and how do they measure it, and is that actually a reflection of or a predictor of success in college? And the answer is we're not always really sure.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am delighted to have as my guests today Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz. They are the co-authors of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the making of the college admissions scandal. The hammer came down, as we've said, in this Operation Varsity Blues. What made it come down? And why, in particular, have all the arrests on the same day? I guess it was not to, to make sure that others weren't alerted, but on the West Coast and on the East Coast in Massachusetts, and Jennifer can address this, um, you 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 had the hammer come down, and what caused it to cave in for Rick Singer? It was uh,
1: it was Completely unrelated and just a, a very random thing. What happened was the Securities and Exchange Commission in Boston got a tip about a big stock fraud case. Was just a run-of-the-mill stock fraud, like a pump and dump case, um, and involved people you know, all around the country, actually some guy in Switzerland. They passed it over to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts. Um, they came to Boston originally because there had been some investors caught up in this so they started to look into it, and they went and uh, served a warrant on a a man out in Hancock Park, um, a, a very nice neighborhood in West Side Los Angeles. He was involved in it. And then, as is often the case in in federal uh, federal cases, the person will come in and try to make a deal. So this man, uh, Murray Kilden, uh came back to Boston to talk about his involvement. In this scheme, and see if he could be of help to the government, and then in return, perhaps get some leniency. So, as part of their questioning of him, if they're going to use him as a witness, they have to make sure they know everything bad that could come out about him, so that the defense, so that the you know defense doesn't seize on something and discredit him. So they look at his bank records, and they happen to see there's some money moving regularly between him and um, and someone in Connecticut. Um, so what's going on there? They asked him, well, he's in a conference room in Boston and he says, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm the coach at, uh, Yale, um, you know, soliciting me for a bribe and I've been paying him bribe payments to get my, my daughter into to Yale. So you can imagine it was like, ding, ding, ding. That sounds a lot more interesting than this stock fraud case. So long story short, they, they basically then started to unravel this scene and they used, uh, Maury Tobin, who did not know Rick Singer, they used him to bring down the the coach from Yale. And then they flipped the coach from Yale and they used him to, they, they realized that, well, he's involved in this there's probably other coaches. They use him and that takes them to, to Rick Singer. And so in the course of, of several months, it went from a pump and bounce fast rod team to them nibbling at, what was the largest college admissions scandal ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice.
0: How did Rick Singer immediately um, respond? Did he batten down the hatches and get the most powerful lawyers he possibly could? Was, was there any uh, discernible, visible sign of stress in his life? Or did he do anything that was seemingly erratic?
1: He, so how they got Rick Singer was they had the Yale coach um, who had already been working with uh, Rick in this illegal way uh, I'm going to introduce you around to some coaches in Boston so why don't you come back um, I have introduced you to somebody at Harvard so Rick comes back he goes to a hotel in Boston of course the FBI is there they confront him um, he was uh, from what I understand he was you know he was very surprised um, there was they, they knew he was it was clear they knew a lot and they had been uh They had a lot of information on him. So what he did is he called a very old friend who he played basketball with back in Sacramento, who was a well-known former federal prosecutor in Sacramento, who's now a a white-collar defense lawyer. He called him and and said, you know, I I need help. And um, so this lawyer um, got together uh, with Rick. He got involved very fast. And, you know, he knew pretty early on, okay, they've got him on tape. They've got, because they had been taping him for months. They've got, you know, they've got a lot on him. And he had no idea that the, that his friend was involved in this. He you knew him as like a, a good guy or interesting guy, you know. Um, so he was pretty surprised. But then, you know, they went out, he went to California, and they sat in an Italian restaurant, and he asked them all these questions about it. And he just said, look, you know, they've got you. And, uh, you know, you, you need to. If I were you, I'd, I'd advise you
0: to work with them. Now, those involved with the scandal, did they all dummy up and just go to their own legal counsel? Or was there any communication that uh, is at least suspected, if not known between them? I'm thinking of, you know, the old uh, gangster roundup movies, you know, you know, we got you, Kowalski, you know, Maloney's um, <laughs> going to talk, you know, and you get it. You know, and they use one person against the other. Was any of that going on, to your knowledge, uh, uh, even with Felicity Huffman and, and Laurie Loughlin?
2: So, some parents did uh, sign cooperation agreements, as did some coaches, uh, as they, you know, because they, they usually do, usually in these federal cases, you start with the little fish and you build your way up to the top. But here they've flipped the top guy, they flipped Singer before they got the parents. So, um, you know, once Singer began to cooperate in uh, fall of 2018, he then would read some scripts while he was on these recorded calls with parents and uh, would kind of help ensure that they said the things that were needed to prove they knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, so he was so, willing
0: to incriminate his former clients?
2: Yes, he handed over his Rolodex, essentially. Um, and uh, with uh, there's always the expectation that there might be some leniency in sentencing if you help right. secure guilty pleas or charges against others. State's
0: witness type um, thing.
2: Exactly. So uh, as the case went on, after the charges against uh, 50 uh, people in last in March 2019, some parents did say, yes, I'll, not only will I plead guilty, but I'll also cooperate and tell you the story of how I worked with Singer or how I recommended him to this other family. And here's the information about that other family. And maybe it would lead to charges against someone else as well. and The prosecutors did add a few more names, uh, charges against a few more people over the past year uh, after that first big wave. Uh, And we, we don't know for sure how much those cooperators helped make that happen.
0: Well, the last count I saw was 53, but that may be very dated at, uh, at this point. Regarding Felicity Huffman and, uh, and her appearance, she didn't seem to uh, fight it. She, uh, In her case, as we've said before at the outset, $15,000 was involved regarding an SAT proctor um, correcting the questions that her daughter had missed on the test. And um, she pretty much was willing, although not delighted, I'm quite sure, willing to accept the lumps that were coming her way. So she did two, two weeks, 14 days uh, in, a, in a penitentiary. In contrast, we have Lori Luckland, who's now agreed to um, accept uh, guilt uh, uh, to a limited degree, and at the same time, she seemed to be the strong holdout, and uh, perhaps uh, garnered some err and, and angst and uh, annoyance from the public. Because she seemed to come across rather arrogant about the issue, as if she was just going to, you know, immediately walk away from this, having signed a few um, autographs outside of the courtroom. What was the what was the issue? Do you think with her being so reticent to acknowledge her involvement, particularly when the sum was a half million dollars, in contrast to say fifteen thousand? So right, so there
2: was this wave of parents. Who pleaded guilty quite quickly. Um, they expressed remorse. They said, "I did something wrong. I'm owning up to it. I would like to, you know, I understand that I'll be punished for this, and then want to move on with my life, however I can." And Felicity Huffman is one of the ones who fell into that category, and she was almost praised as being a picture of contrition. Uh, and you know, she was emotional and she was she was somber throughout. Uh, and then. Laurie Lawson, uh, when she appeared in court in Boston and Jennifer was there to see some of this, you know, she was smiling, she had her sunglasses on, she signed some autographs outside her hotel, and she was very cheerful. And that is just her natural demeanor from everything. You know, everybody who knows her says this. She is an upbeat, positive, cheerful person, and that continued even into the courtroom, uh, which is quite unusual. In terms of her not pleading guilty until the spring, listen a defendant is allowed to see the evidence against them. And many parents uh, said, you know, I want to see what the government has against me, or I don't think their case is strong enough, or there's some holes here that I think I can cite. And uh, she and her husband uh, pleaded not guilty, and they maintained their innocence up until this past May for a little, for a little over a year. And then they did plead guilty. Um, and part of it is, you know, wanting to move on, wanting to, not put their daughters through more of this drama. That said, there are a number of parents who have still pleaded not guilty and plan to take this to trial next calendar year. Uh,
0: do you feel that they have a hope of of getting out of the charges or, or do you feel pessimistic for their plight in the future?
2: It, it's tough to continue to fight those charges when others have admitted to similar behavior and admitted that those were crimes. It's also a jury trial,
0: mm-hmm. so
2: uh, finding a jury... Who will feel sympathetic for them? Perhaps
0: uh, could be challenging. What is the effect on the children? Um, do you have any um, sense of uh, of a pulse of what's going on with with the not only the the parents but the children themselves, who are the subject? Very, if you will, the the motive, the the, the reason for these actions, erroneous uh, as. Some people would allege they were the young people when, in fact, you know, it's been proven, as you've just alluded to, that these things have been proven in court. How do these young people go on now? What, what are their futures like for college or university or elsewhere? I mean, they're always going to be attached to this stigma, are they not, of what their parents did, ironically, for them?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I think they have a, a, a road ahead of, you know, trying to, to always prove that they, they made it on their own. And uh, we know they, that they just really went through, um, through hell, some of them that they, you know, burrowed in, they felt um, ridiculed or, you know, friends turned on them or, um, you know, a lot of attention. And I think uh, we've talked sometimes about how there must be a lot of um, family anger um, going on in in these households that probably won't go away anytime soon. I, I'm, I remember, you know, months and months after the the arrest, uh, talking with a lawyer about possibly talking to a father who had just um, pleaded guilty and he was sentenced, and um, and he was thinking about it. But the lawyer said his daughter um, is currently not speaking to him. They go through phases. Sometimes she is, and sometimes she isn't. Something will come back up, and it just kind of tells you like the the angst. And but I think that one of the saddest things was talking with uh, one of the teens, and he said that what hurt him the most is that you know he, he felt his parents didn't believe in him. And he had had always thought they did. And he just felt like, you know, they didn't believe in me. And why did I work so hard? Um, And did they mean it when they, you know, said they were proud of me? On the other hand, it was interesting uh, talking to him because he realized that he was going to think for himself that he hadn't done enough to kind of push back against how heavily, you know, invested his parents were in his success.
0: I can sense amongst our listeners, at least some of them, thinking the following. Okay, you're making a big deal about an actress uh, offering $15,000 to correct uh, an SAT, uh, offering $15,000 to a proctor for the SAT to correct misgiven, uh, incorrect answers placed by a daughter. But what are, what's really at stake? They're just trying to level the field. For instance, other people get special exemptions and privileges depending on their last name. And I can hear listeners now thinking to themselves, what about the Bushes, George Bush? uh, You know, one Bush goes to a legacy, you know, one Bush goes to to Yale, another Bush goes to Yale. Or conversely, Harvard. Um, You can look at people like Chris Cuomo, you know, and Yale. uh, You have people, you know, going to Harvard. Al Gore had three sons go to Harvard, three children. Um, That's by name, name association. So uh, the question is asked both of George W. Bush, was he really worthy of of Yale? The same question is asked of Chelsea Clinton, was she really worthy of Stanford? Had her last name been Mogolowski or something, would it have made a difference? Is that not unfair in of itself, this legacy concept?
2: There are absolutely inequities in the, baked into the admissions system and preferential treatment for legacies, preferential treatment for donors. Uh, who there's you know the Venn diagram there and a big big area in the middle, legacies and donors, but uh, preferential treatment for people with famous names, just connections uh, for public universities. You know, is is grandpa in the state house? Uh, is you know the uncle a former governor? Uh, that all helps, and the schools say, "Listen, we're not admitting somebody who's entirely unqualified." But it would also be a lie to say that we're not looking at our institutional interests broadly. So you look at, uh, you know, how who are the best people we can take for our class. You also look at uh, how is our endowment doing, and what are our financial needs, and what are our needs in terms of uh, local legislation or. Uh, you know, the reputational benefit of having particular celebrities associated with an institution. And school leaders, uh, to varying degrees, acknowledge that those things can play a role. But again, they say quite often that that alone isn't enough. And if the person is entirely unqualified and happens to have a great last name or, you know, is a major donor, that they're not getting in. I went to high school with somebody whose family had been uh, many generations at Yale and major, major donors there, and one of the kids uh, who was, you know, around my class year didn't get in, and it was, it was appalling and it was shocking. But it also proved that at least once in a while, that part of the system, you know, they decided he just wasn't a fit for the school, even though the family had put so much money into the school over the years.
0: Well, um, I've seen studies that say that as soon as a, an offspring does not get admitted to one of the Ivy League schools, that the, the, the generosity to add to endowments drops immediately <laughs> off by those families. It's like, oh, okay, oh, you, didn't, you didn't accept Chadwell? Well, you'll never hear from me again, Dartmouth or wherever. Um, endowments are uh, utterly unbelievable uh, for many institutions. Harvard, at the moment we speak, has a $39 billion endowment. Um, And the question is asked, if they have that kind of money, why do they have to charge the great sums they do for tuition, which uh, perpetually goes up? Um, Are they not sufficient that they could uh, just basically purely on the merits of of academics alone, admit people and provide for their education, particularly those uh, less fortunate?
2: So – uh, I think endowments are very much misunderstood in terms of what they are and how they are used.
0: Well, help me uh, to understand.
2: It, okay, so uh, it's not that an, a university has a large pot of money of $39 billion. Uh, and again, that is by far the largest endowment among U.S. universities. But rather, it's a whole lot of different accounts of varying sizes. Uh, and the vast majority of endowment funds are earmarked for specific purposes. So. Somebody is making a six million dollar donation for a building. They are making a donation that, that will that they say here's this money, but you can only use it for a uh, faculty salary. You can only use it to spruce up the campus grounds. You can only use it to construct something that will now have my name on it. Things like that. Very rarely do they just give money and say here, use it however you see fit. Uh, when that does happen. You know, the school will use it towards things like buying copy paper and you know running the operation as well as financial aid. So a school like Harvard, their the average net price for undergraduates at Harvard is actually far lower than the published tuition rate um, because the school gives very significant financial aid to a lot of its students. And those very wealthy schools actually have high discount rates because they can afford to., uh, so they do give a ton of institutional aid, but they also say, If nobody's paying tuition, then we can't offer that, uh, you know, those discounts to the people who really need it.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And my guests, I'm delighted to say, are Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz. They are co-authors of the new book, Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. I'd like to ask both of you ladies um, if you could tell me individually what was the most surprising thing that you discovered in the pursuit of covering this very important story?
1: Um, for me, I think it was just how competitive the environment in some pockets is at every single level, and then also there was this uh, striking parochialism almost like this inability to look beyond a very narrow list of colleges um, to me it was sort of a it represented um it was a byproduct of of insularity, maybe just the too much insularity in this in this um, country and, and the bubbles that we live in.
0: All right, and your um, co-author.
2: I I think uh, having covered higher ed for a number of years now, I knew a lot of these shady behaviors existed. Um, some of those questionable acts, some of the you know someone who goes from being perhaps an editor on a college essay to just writing it for a student. uh, I knew that all existed. I knew that families pay so their kids can go on volunteer trips so they can then put it on their college application. I think the complexity of Singer's scheme and the number of people he had to have on board to make this work really was quite astonishing and and, uh, notable. This wasn't just one man doing this. He had... Lieutenants in a number of different arenas that had to all work together for it to succeed.
0: And in the aftermath of having written this book, has it left you with some degree of cynicism or hope or a mixture?
2: Oh, I'm always cynical.
0: (laughs) 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 Is that 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 an occupational hazard?
2: Perhaps. Um, and was, while we were writing the book, I would always tell Jennifer that it was, you know, refreshing to have somebody who was slightly more optimistic kind of
0: uh,
2: <laughs> cheering along. I, you know, I had a few moments of feeling hopeful about reform <laughs> when, uh, toward the beginning, soon after the scandal broke, some schools came out and said, you know, we're going to do a better job auditing applications. We're going to tighten the ship a little bit, close some of those loopholes that may exist. Uh, at least make sure that someone who gets in as a recruited athlete shows up for the team once school starts. But then uh, I went to a conference uh, of college admissions officers and guidance counselors uh, in September of 2019. And the party line was, this is not an admissions scandal. They just kept saying that over and over. And I just kind of shook my head and said, no, nope, not going to be change, Like not real meaningful change uh, if they're not owning it as an industry.
0: Wouldn't the fairest – and you may say, my gosh, you know, uh, you may have a PhD, Dr. Campbell, but you're incredibly naive. And I'm, I'm willing to take that on. Um, but wouldn't the, the, the purest system be just to have blind applications where the candidate is issued a number, you know, B29776 or something, and they send in without their name disclosed so no one knows if they're white, Hispanic, African-American, Asian, whatever – and it's just purely based on their academics. Um, What would be so heinous or horrible about entertaining that idea?
2: It's really not possible to. It's very different from a blind audition in an orchestra, because if you have somebody who's writing their personal essay about having worked, you know, the night shift at the McDonald's to help their family make ends meet, um, that is just, certain parts of their life are going to come through by just the details of their essay. Even if you don't include somebody's name or what their parents do for work, if you list your address, you can tell a lot about somebody by their zip code or you can at least assume a lot about someone yeah, by Yeah, but their with, zip this, code. with this
0: system, I just want to push back for a second. With this system, I mean, as, I, as I'm proposing it, is you you would have a, a third party that the applications are sent to, and then a number is given. So there's been no allocation or recognition, rather, of, of an address. Um, you wouldn't write about having whether or not you worked for, um, uh, on Wall Street as an intern or whether you worked at, at Wendy's. That wouldn't come up. You'd have to do an essay on a totally non-related topic, which would either prove your writing skills or not. Uh, that truly would be a blind system, would it not? And, and isn't that conceivable?
2: That part is perhaps conceivable, but I think I would push back on that and say, but is, it, is, the essay, is the purpose of the essay to be a writing test, solely a writing test? And I think many admissions officers would say, no, that's not all it's supposed to be about. It's we want to know who you are because we want to know which part of this strange, colorful tapestry of an entering class you fit into. Uh, that we don't just want everybody who ends up being kind of the same in our school. It doesn't help if we had everybody who wants to be a chemistry major and comes from the Chicago suburbs, that would be not the best situation, not the best environment for anybody to then learn from one another, that we need to have that context and that background and those stories, uh, which is why there's those more open-ended essay prompt.
1: There, there might be some, some middle ground or something, because I, I hear what you're saying, um, that that there's all these coded ways. So again, I didn't, I don't cover education, so everything was new to me, but I remember talking with, um, people from a, a grade school, Occidental, and they were just, he was, he was taught admissions officer. He was talking about some of the ways that people already know, um, they can tell if a family is going to be, uh, a, a donor without them, the family even offering it. There's all these coded things. Like if the family says, um, that they are trustee at such and such private school, that that's like signal for a money. And they have all these little ways of, of knowing. So I think, I wonder, you know, if you take off that the kid went to ex-private school and um, all that kind of stuff, those kinds of things that scream, you know, my family's going to give.
0: Melissa Korn, Jennifer Levitz, let me ask you regarding your book. What is the takeaway that you would like most people to have after reading it?
2: I think it's in some ways a guidebook on what not to do and perhaps a potential wake-up call to parents of high school students, uh, to guidance counselors, admissions officers, anyone in this universe of kind of college to say it doesn't have to be as, you don't have to be as myopic as some of these parents involved in a criminal case were. Hmm. You don't have to focus just on these few schools and you don't have to let, certain things outweigh others in the pro- in the decision-making process. You can take a deep breath. You can give your kids a little bit more agency, trust them a little bit more, and perhaps uh, look at a few more different schools and it'll end up just fine.
0: And your counterpart?
1: Well, I think it's important for people to remember, um, you know, you do hear people say, well, they were just doing, you know, what, what lots of parents would do and who did they really hurt. And But, um, you know, college is competitive and it's a zero-sum game and one kid gets in, um, another doesn't get in. So they're, even though they weren't technically the victims, um, those kids who did not get in because these parents um, felt like the rules didn't apply to them. Um, I think it's important to remember that kn- group of people.
0: Melissa Corn and Jennifer Levitz are the co-authors of Unacceptable Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. I want to thank both of you ladies so much for joining us. Um, You've given us insight to at least one facet of American society that will no doubt be changing and evolving as the decades go by. And um, for necessity, you gave light to a, uh, a dark period. Let's hope there aren't any more of this nature. Thank you so very much for being a part of Watching America, and I wish you blessings and a great future. Thanks Thank so you. much for having us. Take care. God bless. Everybody needs education. Open university. Education. Every race, every creed. Education. And every little heart You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Everybody. Our producer, Paul Bevo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host... Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.